My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. government in Ontario, conservative government led by Doug Ford, last fall introduced legislation to essentially remove powers from the conservation authorities and put them in the hands of the provincial cabinet as part of a process that they've been engaged in to serve development interests and eliminate or overcome regulatory obstacles and public opposition to further urban sprawl. The That's the voice of Don McLean. He, Sue Carson, and Nancy Hurst are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. McLean, Carson, and Hurst are members of an organization called Hamilton 350. Loosely affiliated with the North America-wide 350.org, they engage in climate activism in the city of Hamilton on the west end of Lake Ontario. Since Hamilton 350's founding in 2009, the group has engaged in education, leafleting, street theatre, lobbying, protest, and direct action, targeting governments, fossil fuel companies, pipelines, and banks, and engaging with a wide range of their fellow Hamiltonians. Among their recent accomplishments was playing an important role in stopping Enbridge from building a fracked gas pipeline through Hamilton's largest wetland in 2020. This year, they've added to their activities with a new project pointing in a bit of a different direction. The Conservative government of Ontario Premier Doug Ford has a reputation for being very friendly to property developers. They have, for instance, made extensive use of ministerial zoning orders to exempt favoured projects from standard planning and environmental scrutiny. And they've pushed municipalities to rework their official plans to make much more land available for the development of residential and commercial sprawl. They have also been attacking conservation authorities, or CAs, a kind of local governmental body in Ontario responsible for things like flood prevention and regulating some kinds of changes in land use within a given watershed. Over the years, many conservation authorities have also become owners and managers of natural areas for both conservation and recreation. It is the authority of CAs to issue or deny permits when it comes to any change in land use that would impact the watershed that has been the primary target of the Ford government. In a couple of different ways, they have relocated that power in the provincial cabinet. In addition, they've issued regulations narrowing the mandates of CAs in a way that will likely result in funding cuts to the organizations. Hamilton 350 members recognized these changes as a serious problem, so they decided to launch a project called Conservation Watch. The core activities of the project are in the name. They watch the meetings of the boards of the four CAs that overlap with Hamilton's municipal boundaries and a few others. They keep each other and a broader network of activists informed about what's happening. And, crucially, when it seems necessary, they mobilize to take further action. That's happened in a direct way only once so far. They discovered that a developer had applied to the Hamilton Conservation Authority for permission to do what is called offsetting, a practice that proponents often describe as quote-unquote moving wetlands, but which many environmentalists see as destroying an ecosystem to allow for development and then creating the appearance of a similar ecosystem somewhere else. 
The group mobilized the broader community, and the resulting pressure on the Hamilton CA meant that it, in a rare move, denied the developer permission. Beyond their work in the Hamilton area, however, the Conservation Watch project is also determined to build alliances across Ontario by supporting local struggles elsewhere. They have, for instance, contributed to victories in fights spearheaded by groups in Stratford and Ajax Pickering against ministerial zoning orders, both through attending actions in those areas and through using their own burgeoning monthly webinar series to build support for them in other parts of the province. They see this work as crucial to building the kind of Ontario-wide movement that will be necessary to reverse the changes at the provincial level. They see these sorts of conservation-focused actions as an important part of responding to the climate crisis in a number of ways. Natural areas can play a role in reducing impacts of climate crisis-associated phenomena. Wetlands can, for instance, mitigate flooding, and forested areas can mitigate heat impacts. As well, natural areas are often carbon sinks. Perhaps even more important, however, the ongoing construction of sprawl both is itself a form of wasteful carbon-intensive energy use, and grows and perpetuates larger systems, transportation for instance, in forms premised on ever-increasing levels of fossil fuel consumption. I speak with McLean, Carson, and Hurst about the Ford government's attack on conservation authorities, about Conservation Watch, and about the importance of conservation as a form of climate action. Uh, and for full disclosure, I myself used to be an active member of Hamilton 350. My name is Nancy Hurst. I am involved with Hamilton 350, and I'm also an activist in the Stop Sprawl Hamont movement. I'm Sue Carson. I've been involved with Hamilton 350, I think going back to about 2009. I also work within my Anglican church. I'm the chair of the Niagara Diocese Anglican Environmental Group, and I sit on a national committee for the Anglican church. My name is Don McLean. I am an environmental activist in Hamilton, also involved with city politics have been working for a number of years on a project called Citizens at City Hall, in which we monitor what takes place at City Hall and write news reports about it, which are circulated online. And 350 is something that I've been involved in since we started the Hamilton Committee in 2009. We are a climate activist group. Our main focus is trying to minimize the climate apocalypse that's coming at us by acting in the local area, in the Hamilton area. We've held lots of rallies, demonstrations, film showings. We've met as an organization pretty consistently every month since 2009. We have a number of subgroups. We've been involved in fighting pipelines, most recently a successful effort to stop a fracked gas pipeline through Hamilton's largest wetlands. And the Conservation Matters work is a continuation of that as an effort to ensure that there is active opposition to damage to the environment as it's manifested through the decisions of the conservation authorities. The Conservation Watch project came into being in response to the Ford government attacks on the conservation authorities. We wanted to ensure that we knew how those played out in practice because there was huge public opposition to those changes. So we started watching the board meetings of the conservation authorities in our area. There are four in Hamilton, and there are three others, I think, at this point that we're watching. So every month we watch those meetings, report to each other on them, and we do webinars that take advantage of that information, as well as other matters that are connected to conservation and climate. 
talk more about that provincial political context for the Conservation Watch project. The current provincial government in Ontario, conservative government led by Doug Ford, last fall introduced legislation to remove powers from the conservation authorities and put them in the hands of the provincial cabinet as part of a process that they've been engaged in to serve development interests and eliminate or overcome regulatory obstacles and public opposition to further urban sprawl, particularly encroachments on significant natural areas. The legislation they introduced generated an enormous response. There were 45,000 emails sent to the province. There were over 40 municipal councils who passed resolutions against it, and all 36 of Ontario's conservation authorities passed decisions against it as well. There were some minor changes, but generally the government has proceeded. One of the first actions that got a lot of attention was they gave an approval by a special ministerial zoning order to pave over one of the wetlands in the Toronto area between Pickering and Ajax in order to allow a warehouse development. So we were involved in opposing that. We've been involved in opposing other ministerial zoning orders that the province has issued. They've issued close to 50 now, I think. And in general, what they're doing is centralizing power in the cabinet's hands and moving to cut the powers of the conservation authorities, which is an institution, I think, specific to Ontario that was established after Hurricane Hazel in 1954 and which governs the situation in watershed. So it's not a political boundary, it's a natural boundary. And they are responsible for preventing flooding, managing erosion, issuing permits or considering permits from those who want to make land use changes, including developers. They advise the municipal governments on what areas are most ecologically sensitive. They have full-time biologists on staff. They monitor water flows so that they can issue warnings for when floods might occur. They have a wide range of activities that they're participating in, and they have some authority. They're a sort of middle-level government, largely composed of municipal representatives, but acting separately from the municipal governments as well. I live right by a conservation area in Hamilton. The number of people that were accessing and wanting to use the trails or the facilities doubled, tripled. Uh, And she means during the pandemic. And just at the time when people were needing those open spaces and the trails, that was just the time when Mr. Ford's government decided that he was going to cut back on perhaps some of the trails because if municipalities can't afford to keep them going with his new legislation, then some of the smaller municipalities may not be able to afford to keep them going and they may have to close them. And what powers is it that have traditionally been held by conservation authorities that have now been shifted upwards to the provincial cabinet? The main one was the permitting authority of the conservation authority as the initial problem area and was identified in the actual legislation. So instead of developers being required to go to a conservation authority and get an agreement from the conservation authority for whatever they were proposing in terms of land use, and these are land uses that in any way affect the watersheds, instead of that, a new feature was brought in that they could go directly to the minister and the provincial cabinet could approve these things. In addition, with the ministerial zoning order process that the Ford government has introduced in a huge way, they passed legislation ordering the conservation authorities to provide permits for the developments that would take place under these ministerial zoning orders, even though at the end of the day, it's the conservation authorities who will be held liable for anything that goes wrong as a result of building on top of a wetland. 
In addition, more recently, the province has now redefined what it calls the core mandate of the conservation authorities. And it's a very limited mandate, which leaves out a lot of the things which conservation authorities have been doing for decades. So recreational programs, trails, camping, the efforts to improve the ecological features of the lands that they manage. And in the case of Hamilton Conservation Authority, they own 1,100 hectares of land. And these are, as Sue was saying, where people turn to connect with nature, to walk trails. There's camping that's managed by the Conservation Authority and so on. All of these things are being excluded from the core mandate. And by excluding them, they're not saying you don't do them. They're just saying you no longer have the authority to go to the municipal government who usually fund your projects and demand money to take care of these things. You now have to negotiate with each individual municipality as to whether or not it's willing to provide funding or not. The conservation authorities, as I said, came into being because we had Hurricane Hazel and over 80 people died in Toronto as a result of that hurricane in 54. And steps were taken to try to ensure that we didn't continue to build in floodplains. So the conservation authorities define and identify the floodplains and update them as the weather changes. And then those areas are off limits for new development. And as a result, they're protected. And that protection has meant that we've got a lot more green space than we might have had. As they developed as an institution, they have become a voice for nature. They've become a voice for the preservation and enhancement of local ecology. And as a result, they've become an obstacle for uncontrolled development. And really what the provincial government, I think, is doing is they want to serve the interests of big developers and they want to weaken and otherwise cause problems for the conservation authorities so that that level of jurisdiction gets pushed aside. The provincial government wants absolute power. The idea of a ministerial zoning order is the same. Get rid of all the rules and regulations that have been put in place. Those things constitute obstacles to uncontrolled development. And they constitute a separate authority from the provincial government. So the provincial government, the one we have here in Ontario, has moved very strongly to try to become the only decision maker. How did the group decide on the Conservation Watch project as a response to all of that? I think just after one 350 meeting, which is a monthly meeting, a few of us were incensed by what was happening by the full government. And we said, well, if you want more discussion, let's just stay behind and carry on chatting. And six or seven of us did. And we now meet every Sunday. We just have a Zoom meeting. All the conservation area board meetings also Zoomed. We've been able to keep firm tabs on what's been happening with the conservation areas. We're watching five of them at the moment. We have a group of 10 of us now. We try and have two people at each of the board meetings. We take notes and record them and then send them out to the rest of the group. Some of them, the staff people show presentations and they've got data going back decades, which could be very useful for finding out about climate change, things to do with trees and water and watersheds and rivers and wells and all sorts of things. So they're going to be a valuable resource going forward in monitoring how we take care of the local environment here in Hamilton. We also looked at that this was a provincial problem, not just one locally. So we have tried to pay attention to and support and work with groups in other parts of the province. So when mm. the effort was by the Ford government to build a warehouse on top of a provincially significant wetland in Toronto, some of us went down and joined in the pickets. We did interviews. We broadcast on our webinar. 
not only interviews with the activists who were fighting this, but also with the staff from the Toronto Region Conservation Authority. So we've attempted to educate the public on what we're Mm. finding out about what conservation authorities do and why they're so important, as well as support active struggles across the province who are facing the same problem that is coming out of what the provincial government is doing. We saw this as an opportunity because there was so much opposition across the province to engage with people and help galvanize that opposition into something that was ongoing and not just a matter of opposing the legislation, but actually making sure that as it's implemented, that all the problems associated with it are exposed and subject to public scrutiny and identifying how those things are damaging the local environment and local people. And, you know, we've got a provincial election next year. The Ford government may have hoped that this would all blow over because they did it early in their mandate. It's not blowing over. The Conservation Authority boards remain quite angry about what's taking place. I'm rather new to this. I certainly haven't been at this as long as Don and Sue have been. But one thing that really struck me when I first started getting involved with paying attention to the Conservation Authorities is that, guess what? (laughs) The board of directors don't really know much. You know, they're on record as saying, oh, I went over to the wetland. Hell, I didn't know what I was looking at. I don't know. I just kind of think that people who are on the board of directors should have some sort of awareness and background in perhaps environmentalism or watersheds or management or something. I just think that there's just a little bit too much development-friendly folks on the Conservation Authority boards here in Hamilton. Maybe these folks have been watching other Conservation Authorities and they see a little bit more expertise perhaps, but here in Hamilton, certainly the board chair, definitely development-friendly. They have a lot of expertise within their staff. The boards have a political component because they're selected by municipal governments. But it's interesting, in most cases, what we see is when a municipal councillor is appointed to a conservation authority board, they understand that they're wearing a different hat and they act differently. And that's how the authority structure has benefited the public in Ontario and helped minimize flooding and help increase the amount of lands that are in public hands and are available, accessible to hiking and camping and that sort of thing. These are very popular institutions, even though they're not well understood in terms of how they operate, but they certainly are understood as a conservation authority. That's where I go to recreate. That's where my kids go for learning education about the natural environment. I understand that so far there has been one major local battle, a a battle that you won, that has come out of this work? I live in Ancaster, where our most recent wetland battle was fought. And this is on the Hamilton Mountain in what's affectionately here in Ancaster known as the Pumpkin Patch along Garner Road. We fought a hard battle and we did well to have a wetland, we refer to it now as the Garner Marsh, protected. That was a pretty significant fight. And it came out of the fact that we were watching the Conservation Authority board meetings. So we were able to identify that this was being proposed. Normally, these things don't get much media attention at all. And if they do, it's only because something particularly drastic is happening. In this case, the developer came in and said, look, we've got a grand plan. We're going to produce 3,000 jobs and five warehouses and millions and millions of dollars of new tax revenue. And of course, you should support this. And the only thing we need to do is we need to take this wetland that's in the middle of the property and relocate it, slide it over the edge of the property so it'll be out of the way of our warehouse development. 
And as far as we can make out, the Conservation Authority board that we're dealing with here has never actually turned down a permit until this occurred. And they turned it down, I think, because they heard from the public in a very large way. Lots of people were following this. At the end of the day, there were well over 200 letters went in and a petition of over 500 names. We did webinars focused specifically on this and they were well attended. And that got through to the Conservation Authority board members and the permit was rejected. Oh, you move a wetland is beyond me because in this case, the marsh, the magic is all underground. It's not just a matter of dig a pond and have some pretty water with some bulrushes growing out of it. It's a significant groundwater recharge area that can't be recreated somewhere else. What I was personally happy with is that the community really responded. We put a call out for people to both write in to the Hamilton Conservation Authority and to delegate. I think, if I remember correctly, about 130 or more letters were received within the space of a week. And about seven people delegated. And at this hearing, which is a a very rare event, it turns out that the Conservation Authority listened to the people and decided to deny the permit application. You just can't build a new wetland in another location after you've hired a landscape architect to make it all pretty. It's really a stormwater pond, (laughs) not a wetland. Based on what you've seen so far, what other kinds of issues do you think might come up that will require, you know, mobilization, advocacy, action, whatever? We were told about something that was happening near the Credit Valley just this week, that there's a mega quarry being built. I sense that's the sort of thing that, you know, if something's happening in one of the areas that we might get involved. There's letter writing and perhaps finding a local group and giving support to them, like we did with the Duffins Creek. Uh, that's the one mentioned earlier in Ajax Pickering. And we did the same in Stratford when they were putting a glass factory and we had speakers from there and helped write letters and things like that. So I think feeling that if we can support different areas, <laughs> they might support us when we need them. So I think mobilizing different groups around southern Ontario is perhaps something that I see us working on because we've already got a group that's ready to act. I think that's one of the really interesting features of what we've accomplished so far. We've been part of either supporting or actually leading several victories. Sue mentioned the Stratford situation. We jumped in to interview them on our webinar, give them a platform for what was going on in their community where a factory was being imposed by the provincial government through a ministerial zoning order. In that case, the factory that was being imposed on Stratford would have increased their greenhouse gas emissions for the entire community by over 50%. And they were successful in defeating it. The folks in Duffins Creek area, where the wetland was to be paved over for a warehouse, they won that fight as well, partly because it came out that the company that was really going to build that warehouse was Amazon. And as soon as that became public, Amazon ran for cover and the whole thing collapsed. And we won this fight to stop moving the wetland in the Ancaster Creek headwaters. And what we're finding over and over again is that there's lots of efforts being made to try to protect the natural areas. They're being made by groups all across the community, and they're coming to us as allies and looking for assistance in how do we take this on, how do we fight this? Because what we've succeeded, I think, in building is a substantial constituency. Our webinar 
there's a lot of people following what we've been doing. And the fact that we were successful specifically in the Hamilton, the Ancaster one, is further evidence that this is a way in which the public can get directly involved in what is real practical climate action. Because if we destroy our natural features, we are contributing to the climate crisis getting rid of the natural sinks and creating more paved over areas, more areas that are going to generate flooding and are going to generate more emissions. And the loss of farmland is a particularly significant problem that we've been able to bring farmers on, be part of our webinars, at the same time as connecting with the professional staff and the conservation authorities and having them come on and talk about what kinds of things they're doing to try to improve the natural areas. One thing that I think that Hamilton 350 has been so great at doing is really showing how climate change isn't far away. You know, climate change is a tangible thing, but it's also something that sometimes happens in only BC where the fires are. But when you can somehow help people to connect the dots between paving over a wetland, these are the results that you can expect from that. It makes it much more understandable to regular people who are then going to be much more motivated to simply pick up the phone and make a phone call or send that email. And yeah, I think this group has been really great at getting people through the cloudy bits and helping them to understand this is how it affects you. It's really a climate issue. And here's some very simple steps that you can take because people want to act. They just maybe don't know the ways to do it. You've just touched on it, but do a bit more to lay out for folks the ways in which this conservation-focused work is, in some really important ways, a form of climate activism. We've had flooding in Hamilton, tremendous flooding. The conservation area have the expertise to explain and understand about watersheds and so on. And if we're not listening to them, then we're going to have more flooding. There's going to be more rain, going to be more events affecting more people more often. I think people just have to realize that the small pockets of conservation area that we have dotted around Hamilton and most of the small towns and cities of southern Ontario, they need that conservation area to absorb the water. They do not need to pave it over. And the sooner we get that, the less flooding there will be. We need to build more wetlands. We don't need to get rid of them. And lands that are owned by the conservation authorities, and as I said, in Hamilton, they're quite substantial, are largely forested for their wetlands. And in both those instances, they are major sinks for carbon dioxide. They are a way to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And it's understood that more trees and more wetlands and more natural features are already and will be particularly helpful in addressing the emission problem that we have. They're also really critical, as Sue was saying, to the issue of flooding. And flooding is probably the most visible impact that Hamilton has had from climate change with extreme weather and then, as a result, major floods that are coming into residential areas and flooding people's homes and basements. And we expect, reasonably, watching what's been happening in other parts of the world and what's been happening even locally, that we're going to see more extreme weather that's going to create more of those kinds of impacts of flooding and of excessive heat. If you've got a forested area that's been preserved because the Conservation Authority has purchased it and manages it to keep it in a natural state, that will help in terms of reducing the heat impact. You have been listening to my interview with Don McLean, Sue Carson, and Nancy Hurst of Hamilton 350's Conservation Watch project. To learn more about it, 
Search for Hamilton 350 on Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.